Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would just open our hearts now to your word and that you would be uh, blessed as we give honor to it. We pray that you would just speak to us, God. Teach us, grow us, make us more like you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So 2 Corinthians, uh, if you're going to start going through a book at chapter 11 in a book, you need to understand what's come before. And before you have 2 Corinthians, you have the book of 1 Corinthians. Before you had the book of 1 Corinthians, you had the church in the city of Corinth. The church in the city of Corinth was a church that Paul started in the New Testament uh, during the book of Acts. And it was a uh, seaport town. It was a very wealthy town. It was a very sinful town. And so a church got started there. And, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the message that we are sinners and Jesus came to save us from that sin, took hold in that city. And so a church was birthed. Um, but 1 Corinthians is written because a few years have gone by and, and Paul is, he has moved on. He's planning other churches. He's now in the city of Ephesus planning a church there. And he gets a report that the Corinthian church is not doing well. They're actually not doing well at all. And so he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. And really, it's an, it's an exhortation to them, hey, you need to grow up, right? You need to learn what it means to be a mature Christian. And so the book is all about growing up in the Lord. Um, <clears throat> and the great thing about it is the church received what he said. The church responded to 1 Corinthians, and Paul then sent another pastor there, Pastor Titus. And Titus is working with the people. He's helping them grow, and he, he comes to Paul and says, hey, the people are growing. They received well, everything you told them, they, they responded to it, but they've got some questions now, and they're not questions about how do we do church and, and some of that kind of stuff like they were asking in 1 Corinthians. They're questions about Paul and Paul's character, Paul's integrity, because false teachers had come from a church in the city of Jerusalem, and they had had these, they had these papers that said, hey, we're certified apostles, and Paul doesn't have papers, does he? And so the church in the city of Corinth, instead of saying, no, 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 you don't understand. We know Paul. We've worked with Paul. We understand his character. The church says, you know, maybe there is something shady about Paul. And, and you know, you have to imagine how just hurtful that would be on Paul's end, right? A church that you have labored over, that you have tried to pour into, that you have tried to disciple, that you have tried to, you know, live with them. You've lived with them for, I think, 18 months. You've shared in their problems and their pain, and you've gotten to see them come to know the Lord, and now they just don't know if you're really a person of integrity. And so, 2 Corinthians is really two things. One, it's Paul's defense of his own apostleship. It's a very, it's a reluctant defense where he says, basically, I don't want to defend myself, but for the integrity of the church, I'm going to stand up and say, no, they're wrong when they make these accusations against me because I, have, I am qualified. And the primary qualification that he lays out that he, is that he's been called by the Lord. That's what qualifies every one of us. That's what makes every single one of us a minister of the gospel, right? Being a minister is not about being a pastor. It's about, do you have a heart to serve the Lord? And then secondly, um, the book of 2 Corinthians is, is Paul's commentary on what does it mean to be in ministry, what does it look like when we're in ministry, when we're serving the Lord, when we're part of what God wants to do? And so there's two things, they're side by side, but they're very important for us to sort of see both. And as we go through tonight, um, you know, Paul's addressed specific issues throughout the book that the Corinthians have had. The questions that have been raised about, well, what are your qualifications? How do we deal with money as a church? Um, are you dealing appropriately? And Paul answers all these questions. And then basically chapter 10 which we covered last week, he starts to move into, okay, 
now I need to defend, now I'm going to defend my character. And Paul is not defending his character for his own reputation. Paul is a guy who let people assault his reputation all the time. What he's doing is, I'm defending my character for your sakes, okay? And so that's where we find ourselves. He says, chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So Paul says, oh, I wish you would put up with me in a little folly. He says, okay, listen, I'm going to say some stupid stuff. And basically, he's kind of just, he's honestly, I think he's a little bit embarrassed about defending himself. Like that moment, you know, if you ever, a lot of us want people to think we're awesome, right? But every once in a while, you do something that's like really awesome. And it's like just so cool that you're just like, I don't want to tell anybody. Because if I tell them, they'll think I'm, I'm blowing smoke. And so you just kind of don't say anything. And so Paul's kind of in that state. He's like, okay, look, I'm going to kind of go down this road. I feel kind of foolish doing it. But he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. This isn't jealous like a jealous boyfriend. This is jealous in the sense of with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you, he says, to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul sees himself really in the role of the best man at a wedding, okay? He says, I'm jealous for you. A best man at a wedding uh, and it's a little bit different now, uh, culturally, but really his job is sort of to stand beside the groom, sort of be a cover. He's, you know, he can provide security if he needs to, whatever else. His job is to make sure that the bride and the groom can get married and nobody gets in the way. And so Paul says, look, my job is basically to sort of protect you guys for the groom. Who's the groom? Jesus Christ, right? So Paul says, I want to present you as a chaste virgin, I want to I see you brought into your relationship with Christ in the fullest way possible. So I'm, gonna, I'm willing to defend my character, even if it feels foolish, because my goal is to see you guys pure before Christ. I don't want you corrupted by false teachers. And so I'm willing to do whatever it takes. He goes on in verse 5. He says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. So here we go. Paul's going to start defending himself. And uh, it's going to, if you were to read it right at face value, you could say, wow, Paul's going to be really arrogant here. But if you read it in the context of 2 Corinthians, this is very reluctant on Paul's part. But he says, okay, verse 7. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. Paul says, did I sin? Because when I was living with you for 18 months, I didn't take a salary as a pastor. I'm so sorry. Paul is going to be very sarcastic through these chapters because they're accusing him. They're saying, Paul, the, these false teachers from Jerusalem are saying Paul isn't a real apostle because he doesn't take a salary from the church. And real apostles, like ourselves, take a salary from the church. So if you want to support a real apostle, like ourselves, you should probably give us some of your money. 
That's what these apostles are saying. And Paul says, oh, excuse me. I didn't realize I was sinning by not charging you money, by not ripping you off. I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And by the way, he says, I'm going to keep myself that way. So, sorry, has that offended you? Get over it. Verse 12, but what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. He says, but what I do, I'm going to continue to do, to cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are. Paul says, actually, no, I'm going to continue to refuse to take a salary from you in particular. Because the church at Corinth, we know from, from references here, references in church history, was a very wealthy church. There was a lot of money flowing in that church. And so Paul, as a matter of principle, decides, I will not take a salary from this church. Why? To protect them. Because he knows I'm going to leave and false teachers are going to come. And if these guys have the example of, well, you know, a normal fee for a pastor is $1,000 a sermon, then false teachers are just going to come and skim them off. But if they have a, an understanding, no, a pastor is someone who's got a heart to serve the people. And when a false teacher shows up and says, all right, I'm happy to teach. I'd like to check in advance, please. You can say, no, actually, that's not how real apostles work. We had an example. We had a guy named Paul uh, who happened to be, you know, the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament. You may have heard of him. Um, I don't think if, if his model was don't take money from the church and your model is you have to take money from the church, maybe this is mixed up. Paul's refusing to take money from the church at Corinth because he knows that any church in a place of prominence is going to have false teachers come in. And so he's actually trying to protect the church. He receives gifts from other churches. And he elaborates elsewhere from poor churches. Because a poor church <clears throat> isn't as at risk of, you know, a televangelist or somebody coming in and trying to rip them off. Why? Because if your goal, if you're a false teacher and your goal is to make money, what do you do with a poor church? You just skip it, right? You're on a circuit. You're going to find the big churches and the rich churches. And so Paul's okay. Paul's not saying it's wrong for a pastor to take money, but he's saying there's a principle behind this. And that is, my goal is to protect you as a church. In verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in his confidence and boasting. See, that many, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it. If one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Paul, he says, okay, look, basically I'm going to meet these false teachers at their level. And you guys as a church can judge. All right, he says, you guys, you, you put up with it when these guys bring you into bondage and devour you and take from you and exalt themselves and strike you on the face. So these false teachers are not really interested in, in seeing the church grow. And he says, oh, by the way, I'm sorry, I was too weak to do that. I didn't bother slapping you when I disagreed with you. Um, but he says, all right, you guys, you guys judge. That's their level of foolishness. Now I'm going to boast. And again, I'm going to boast in what the Lord has done. And he's kind of using boasting not in a true sense of arrogance to exalt Paul, but in the sense of I want to demonstrate what God is doing. So verse 22, he's going to compare himself 
to these false teachers. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. One of the big things that the false teachers were emphasizing was you need to be either Jewish or become Jewish culturally in order to really be a Christian. Paul says, all right, listen, they got their claims to Judaism. I can meet them on that level. Are they the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And I love this. He's in, are they ministers of Christ? Boy, this feels stupid. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things what come up upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? This is one paragraph. And Paul, you almost get the sense he's trying to get through it as fast as he can. But this is, you know, and it's because it's short, we can read it real fast and then forget to back up and, and consider really what he's saying, all right? Paul's addressing, you know, he says, hey, these false teachers, they bring you into bondage, they're devouring you, they're taking from you, they're exalting themselves. If we want to talk about actions and if, if these guys are judging me based on my actions, here's my actions. I've been in stripes above measure. I've been whipped more times than I can count. I've been in prisons frequently. I've been in deaths often, in danger of death. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. It's 195 whips with a lash. What the Jewish people would do, in the law of Moses, it said you could only whip someone 40 times. And so in order to be hypervigilant, they would always stop at 39, just in case they miscounted. So, you know, okay, wait, wait, 39, in case we miscounted, just to be on the safe side, we'll stop here. Um, so that's what he's referencing. He says, okay, <clears throat> I got that five times, three times. I was beaten with rods. I've never been beaten with rods, plural. I've never been beaten with a rod, singular, right? I've received some corporal punishment as a child, but that's a different story. Um, I've never been beaten with a rod. And if I had, and especially if I had in the name of being a Christian, if that was what it brought it on, uh, think about how often would you talk about it? You know, you know, Remember back when I was, you know, back in 65 when I was beaten with rods. I, like, it would just work its way in, like every conversation you have. Like, oh, did I ever mention that I was beaten with rods? Yes, yes, for the gospel, because I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a super Christian. I mean, it's not that I'm super spiritual or anything. I just, you know, I refuse to cave. I'm a man of principle. So they, they beat me with rods. What can I say? <laughs> I am pretty awesome. Um, sometimes when we go through a hard time and a persecution, we tend to want to exalt these things, right? And it's not bad to remember them. All right, it, it's good to remember what God has brought us through and what he's done. But Paul isn't glorying in these things. Aside from these, we have very little reference to the hardships Paul goes through. We get some specifics in the book of Acts where he had some pretty gnarly stuff. But this is pretty much the summary of what we get of Paul's suffering. And um, it says, I was, three times I was shipwrecked. This is before the end of the book of Acts. So he'll tack at least one more on there. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Paul spent 36 hours floating in the ocean, just waiting for something to nibble, right? Why? Because he's a Christian. Because in the name of 
taking the gospel in the name of, I want to see people come to know Jesus, he was willing to take risks that made him uncomfortable, that brought him pain, that would have made friendships hard. I mean, I don't really want to, I like hanging out with you guys. If I know that hanging out with you is going to get me whacked with a stick in the head, I'll pass, right? Like, just no. Like, we're not that good of friends. Sorry. Um, I've been in perils everywhere. He says, I've been, besides all the other things, my deep concern for all the churches. Also, on top of that, I have a spiritual burden because I want to see you guys grow. And, I, and, and he's, he's not saying it directly here, but on top of that, he's got the spiritual weight of knowing that they're now questioning his integrity, right? And contrast that with these false teachers. These false teachers are here to get some power, to get some money, move on. How many stripes do you think these false teachers would be willing to take for the Corinthian church? How many beatings? How many stonings? Not drug stonings, like getting hit in the head with rocks for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the, for the sake and the health of this church. How many times do you think these false teachers would put up with it? None, right? And Paul's just making a point here. Paul's not glorying in what he's done. He's not saying this makes me an awesome Christian. He's saying, just understand, I have a heart to see you guys grow, to see you guys protected and built up. So he goes on in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Okay, you know, like, hey, remember the time? This was early on in Paul's ministry. Um, Yeah, so I got in trouble. They were going to arrest me, and so we just slipped out. You know, they let me down in a basket over the wall, jumped in a cart, and away we went. Paul has spent his career as a Christian, his life, uh, either running from danger or running into danger and just taking it because the gospel matters. And so he's just, there's a contrast here. Between what is the heart of a real apostle? What is, and it's also, again, a commentary on ministry. What does it look like to serve the Lord? If someone tells you that serving the Lord will bring you ease, they're lying or they are incredibly ignorant, one or the other. But serving the Lord is not going to be easy. It's going to be filled with joy, it's going to be filled with depth and riches, uh, richness, but it's not going to be filled with, maybe it may not be filled with a whole lot of fun, but it's going to be filled with glory, the glory of Christ abiding in your life, right? Stepping into the holiness that God is offering us, it's going to be beautiful, but it may not always be peppy. And so he goes on, verse 12, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So he said in verse 20, if I must boast, I'll boast in the things which concern my infirmities. So he's going to kind of switch gears, and he's, now it's not about, because his, his emphasis is, I don't want to focus on what Paul has done. Let's get back to what the Lord has done. So, okay, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in things which concern my infirmity. So verse 1 of chapter 12, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. 
So Paul's describing a vision, and it's written in third person, but if you understand the context, it's, it's autobiographical, all right? Um, the Jewish rabbis at this time in history, if you were right, if you were telling a story where you were the hero of it, you write it in third person. And Paul's mentor specifically, we know from history, everything he wrote, where he was the positive character in the story, is in third person. So Paul would have learned to write this way. So he says, I know a man, and that's the equivalent of saying, me, right? Uh, he was, whether in the body I do not know, whether out of the body I do not know. I don't know if I was alive or dead when this happened, but I was caught up to the third heaven. And don't get hung up on that. Um, I think the Mormons translate that to mean like there's like three levels, like bad people, medium people, and good people. Um, it's a Greek thing, okay? First heaven is basically where the birds and the airplanes fly. Second heaven, stars, all that kind of stuff. Third heaven, God. All right, just a reference. So third heaven basically means I was in the presence of God. And I was caught up into paradise, and I heard inexpressible words. I heard things, I saw things that I can't even tell you about. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me, he says. So Paul says, I saw things. I can't even tell you. If I told you, you'd either think I was bragging or lying, whichever one it is, and it wouldn't benefit you. But I saw things. Right? I, I saw things, and specifically, I think I saw someone. I saw Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you what that looked like because we're not capable of processing how incredible that is. We're just, your, your brain right now, your mind cannot conceive what the glorified Jesus Christ looks like or what it would be like to be in his presence. Paul says it, just, it, it wouldn't even be lawful. I just couldn't even handle it. It would be so, any words I could use would be such a reduction that it would almost be offensive. Verse 7 he says, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Again, remember, he's defending himself. These guys are saying, well, you know, does Paul have real qualifications to be a minister? Did Paul have visions? Does Paul do good works? He says, well, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations that I've seen. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, <clears throat> in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a really interesting passage because Paul says, okay, because I was given so many revelations, because the Lord has just blessed me with so many opportunities, so many visions, and I've seen so much of the glory of God, He's also allowed me to experience, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. And um, the, the Greek word there is like the giant stake. It's not like the rose thorn, like the thorn in the flesh. Uh, that was given to him, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So you can look at this and say, well, wait a second. Did God strike him with this thing or is this from Satan? And it's sort of the answer is sort of both. He says, it's a messenger of Satan to buffet me. This is a, uh, some sort of problem that Paul is living with, okay? Presumably a physical problem that Satan is using basically just to try and beat Paul over the head with. And the Lord isn't taking it away. And Paul says, I prayed three times. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, God. And so why did Paul stop after the third time? Because God answered him. Okay, and, and again, this goes back to sort of where Paul was at 
earlier, sometimes you get this idea, well, if you just come to Jesus, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. Paul says, well, kind of, right? Everything is great. I've experienced you know, an abundance of revelation. I've gotten to see the gospel spread. I, I've, I know that I'm bound for eternal glory in heaven. That's great. But in the meantime, I've got some sort of, I've got this infirmity that Satan just keeps using to, to bother me with, right? And, and he pleads with the Lord, and the Lord says, no, I'm going to leave it. The Lord does not always heal us in the way that we hope he will. Right? And there are sometimes there are teachings in the church that says God always wants to heal. And if you have enough faith, God will always heal you. And I believe in praying for healing. I really do. I believe in miracles. I believe that God wants to heal very often. Probably more often than we give him credit for. I think if you're sick, uh, there sometimes is a very real spiritual component in the Gospels. There's a couple references to sicknesses that are brought about by demonic forces. And so sometimes sickness is truly a spiritual thing and it needs to be prayed over and, and cast out. But sometimes sickness is just a reality of living in a cursed world. And sometimes the Lord will choose to leave it there. And you can say, well, why? Or why is that fair? And, and, and we, can, we can sort of start to rationalize the problem. But what we need to stop and do is, is what Paul does is, is go back to who's the person. The person is God. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, you have fellowship with me. You have salvation. You have the promise of eternity. You have the power of my Holy Spirit working in your life. You have a physical ailment. Which one is greater? Which one's going to last longer? Which one's going to hold you? Which one's going to, which one's going to define your life? Because what I'm offering you is, is more than sufficient. And Paul talks about that really throughout First and Second Corinthians. You know, our outer bodies are decaying, but our inner man is being renewed. We're being transformed. God is doing something on the inside. And the outside is still going to break down, right? So, so God leaves this to keep Paul humble because he doesn't want Paul to get overconfident. Paul has been given so much, right? If Paul had all of this and six-pack abs, it, just, it would go to his head. And so God leaves him uh, an infirmity to keep Paul humble. And so Paul says, verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. That's a sentence that any one of us can learn to say. Paul says, I take pleasure in it for Christ's sake. You do not have to go into this like stupid uh, denial of, you know, I don't, you know, I've got a cold. It's not a cold. I'm rebuking the cold in Jesus' name, right? I don't, you know, pray for the cold. If you've got a cold, pray that God heals it, right? But you don't have to rebuke it. You can just say, you know what? God, I pray you'd heal me from this. But you know what? Whatever God does, he's doing it for his sake. He's doing it to glorify himself. He's doing it because he is God, because he's all-powerful, and because he sees a much bigger picture than I do. And so I hope he takes this away. I hope he fixes this problem or this relationship or this challenge or this struggle. If he doesn't, he's still got a plan. He's still got a purpose. And so you know what? I don't have to be happy about it. I can take pleasure in it. It's not the same thing. Scriptures does not call us to happiness. We're called to joy. That's a different thing. Happiness is what happens when something good happens to me, right? This happened. It made me feel nice. I have an emotional response. That's happiness. Joy is I am making an active choice by the power of God living in me to see a bigger picture and to not 
be defined by the circumstance. One is the circumstance defines my response to it. That's happiness. Joy is the circumstance does not define my response to it. My response is bigger than the circumstance. That's joy. Paul says, I'm going to find joy in this. So he goes on in verse 11. He says, I have become a fool in boasting. You've compelled me. Okay, look, I might have sounded a little cocky, but it's your fault. Uh, For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Again, he says, gee, guys, I'm so sorry. You guys, you're right. You didn't get the most prominent church award because I didn't take money from you. Gee, I'm sorry. Verse 14. Now, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the parents ought not to lay up for the, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Paul says, I'm coming again, and I'm still not going to take money from you. The church was evidently really hung up on this. And so Paul is really answering it. I'm not taking money from you. Deal with it. He says, verse 14, I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. This is one of the critical marks of ministry. And the critical mark of if someone is serving the Lord well in a position of authority. Paul says, I don't seek yours, I seek you. I'm not seeking what can I get from you. I'm seeking to see you grow. This is not about what do you have to offer me. This is about what can I bless you with. And that's a fundamental difference. And listen, if, you, if you're a young person, somebody you're going to grow up, there's a good chance you'll, there's a decent chance anyways, you'll move away, you'll go to college or go get a job in another city, you're going to find another church or, you know, the rest of you guys will just get mad at something I say and you'll leave and go find another church. That's fine too. Maybe. Uh, if you're ever looking for a church or a pastor, you need to consider this really hard. Is that, is that leader... trying to seek yours? Is he seeking your stuff? Or is he seeking your heart? Is he seeking to see you grow closer to the Lord or grow closer to the offering plate? And it's, it's an important question. And Paul is dealing with it head on because these false apostles are coming and that's what they're after. And Paul says, I am not going down that road. Because he says, for the children ought not to lay it for the parents, but the parents for the children. He says, spiritually, frankly, I'm your spiritual parent. And in a parent-child relationship, how is it supposed to work? The parents are supposed to be pouring into the children, right? You've seen situations where the child has to take care of the parent, and it's just, it just, you, just you can instinctively just feel how backward it is, right? This is not right. Paul says, that's how it is in the church, the, the role of the pastor is not to get what he can from the congregation. It is to give what he can to the congregation. The word minister means servant. All right? 
It, the word pastor, you kind of get the same idea of like pasture, like shepherd the sheep. Shepherds are not butchers. They are herders, right? Their job is to make healthy sheep. And so Paul says the role of a minister, the role of a pastor, the role of an apostle or whatever is to have concern, have regard, have a heart for the people. And if that ever gets lost, that minister is in serious danger. Serious danger. If, that verse, if those two verses could be applied, that verse, sorry. If 2 Corinthians 12, 14 got applied to every church in the world, we wouldn't have any more scandals. The Catholic Church wouldn't have to deal with pedophilia. The Protestant Church wouldn't have to deal with adultery. All these problems would be gone. If the, church could, if, if the pastor in the church could say, I don't seek yours, I seek you. I want to see you draw closer to Christ. Verse 19, chapter 12, he says again, Do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God and Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Verse 13, he goes on, This will be the third time I am coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word will be established. I have told you before and foretell, as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So what Paul's saying, and again, we sort of covered this earlier in 2 Corinthians, these false teachers are saying, you know, Paul, boy, he writes these fiery letters, but he's just too nice in person. He's, he's got to be, there's, there's, some, there's some hypocrisy going on there. Ooh, Yeah. And that guy, you know, he's nice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, that's the mark of a wuss. No, no, Paul is not a real apostle. Paul says, guys, I'm coming. And if there is active sin going on, I'm dealing with it. So basically, he's giving him a heads up. You've got a chance to get your act together before I show up. Because when I come, I am going to deal with it. And I don't want there to be outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. He says, I'm going to deal with sin. All right? And this is, this is important. If a person's in a position of leadership, they can't excuse sin. Now, there's a need to be gracious. And Paul was a gracious man to the point that people accused him of being weak, right? But don't misunderstand. Paul's also the guy who says, I'm going to deal with it. We are going to address the situation. If someone is refusing to, to surrender their heart to the Lord, if someone is refusing to quit walking in sin, there's a time and a place to deal with it and say, you know what? You're corrupting the rest of the church. You're not welcome here. If someone's trying to grow close to the Lord, there's times for an immense amount of grace. Say, hey, we want to pray for you. We want to help you. We want to, we want to help you find some actionable steps to help you stay away from these situations or these people. We want to come alongside you because we don't seek yours. We seek you. We want to see you grow. So we're going to, man, we're, there's so much grace for this. All right? So Paul is willing to, to ride both to address both sides in a healthy way. In verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. This is always interesting to me. Paul, you know, he's addressing, hey, I'm going to show up and I'm going to deal with sin. One of the things he wants to deal with, before we get to, you know, before I just kick you out of the church, let's ask a question. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And he tells us to examine yourselves, test yourselves. So sometimes it's good, you know, I mean, I know, I know most of us in the room, right? Well, most of us are, are believers. We believe that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man, that he died, uh, he lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and that if you believe in him and ask him to forgive your sins and fill you with his holiness, he will. And that your sins are washed away and that you are, you are clean in the eyes of the Lord. You are free to stand in his presence. But sometimes it's good to just examine yourselves and say, okay, do I believe it, first of all? And then if I believe it, if I actually do, Am I responding as if it's true? Because those aren't always the same thing. Sometimes we can believe something and then wish it weren't true, right? So just for a second, just pause. And I want you to just think about, just ask yourself the honest question. Am I responding to the gospel? Am I Christian? Now, Paul says, look, I'm confident that, you know, if you know yourself, Jesus is in you, I trust that you'll know that, right? So if you know, if you're like, yeah, I, I sincerely believe, then that's great. If you're like, you know, I hope, I, I wish, I think, then, then address it. Deal with it, right? Come talk to me. Come talk to really probably anybody, um, but, you know, grab me after the service. Say, hey, you know what, let's, let's make sure. Making sure is easy. But he says, just examine yourselves. And he says, verse 7, Now, I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, Lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Paul says, guys, basically he's wrapping up the letter. Guys, the reason I've written all this is because I want you to do what's honorable and I want you to be complete in Christ. And I would really love to not have to show up and, and do this all in person. And so we have actually the benefit of Paul being a nice guy. We have the letter that he wrote as a heads up. Paul says, guys, I'm coming. Right? And I want to see you be made complete. I don't want to see you guys be incomplete. I don't want to see you stop short of where God is calling you and say, well, that looks too painful. That looks too hard. That looks just too boring. I want you to experience everything that Christ has for you. So verse 11, we get the final benediction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you. If you want to pray a blessing over somebody, that's a good one. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a little bit cultural. I'm comfortable with a handshake. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
Amen. Now, a couple things as we're wrapping up. The last verse in particular is an important verse to know from an apologetic standpoint because there are, there are false doctrines that go around that say, well, the Trinity, the idea that God is three in one, that's made up, you know, the, the Catholic Church made that up in like the 300s and it's not real. Jesus never said he was God and all this kind of stuff. Every member of the Trinity is present and active and has a, has a specific role, but they are all still God in this verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion, or that's that's another word for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Paul says, I wish upon you as a church the fullness of every part of God's character. Right? That's my prayer for you. That's my blessing upon you. And notice also, this is really important. I've been thinking about this. Notice Paul's writing this book to a church that has hurt him deeply, right? I mean, this is the church. Paul spent 18 months pouring into these guys. And then he writes them a letter, and it's like, okay, fine. We're, we're, they're, they're, you know, they're finally starting to grow up. But now they doubt my integrity. They doubt my character. They think I'm ripping them off because I'm not ripping them off, right? Like, this church is, is hurting Paul. And notice, there's no bitterness, Right? This, this book is Paul's commentary on ministry in a very real sense. Right? Comment, what does it mean to serve the Lord? What, does it mean, what are some practical sides of ministry? And what's missing in this is bitterness. These people have hurt Paul deeply. And you know what Paul's prayer is for them? What's he say? He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He says, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. The God of love and peace be with you. That's ministry, right? People are going to hurt you in life. If you're young enough that they haven't, give it time, and they will. And so it's a reality of the human experience. You are going to be hurt. And specifically, if you are in the church for a long period of time, you're going to be hurt by people in the church. People who you are trying to pour into, people who you are trying to bless, they are going to hurt you, and you're going to have to decide your response. Second Corinthians is Paul's commentary on ministry, and, and the subtle underlying theme is, I want the blessings of God to be poured out on you, regardless of what you've done. And for each one of us, we've said it before in this church several times, how many people in this church are in full-time ministry? All of them. Every single person in this church who's a Christian is a full-time minister. We are all in the business of serving God and serving God's people. That's our job, right? So every single one of us needs to have the heart that Paul had to this church, right? Hey, I want to see you be made complete. I want to see you grow. And if you've hurt me deeply, I still want to see it happen. I still want to see God do a work because we're in, Paul's not in pursuit of prestige. He's not after the money. He's not after anything else except, you know what? I want to see the glory of Christ, and I want to see the glory of Christ in your life too, right? So, God bless you guys with the glory of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would continue to work it into our hearts and in our lives. 
Speak to us, God. Draw us closer. Cut away the things in our lives that need to go. We want to be like the Apostle Paul. We want to be just passionate about pursuing you, about serving you, regardless of whatever the short-term cost is. God, there's a long-term gain coming. We want to have our eyes on the end. God, we don't want to get lost in the middle. We want to see your plan. So we pray that you would strengthen us, equip us, give us boldness, give us courage, give us your power. We pray that we would know you in all of your fullness. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, that we pray. Amen.